Welcome back. In Betty's time, today is the 18th of May, 1946, 75 years ago. It seems like only yesterday that we heard from Bet, and I guess it was. There's always so much news, so much going on, bearing in mind that she is finding herself in a completely alien and challenging environment where everything is new, everything is so different from anything she had experienced before. Before we hear from Bet today, we'll again resume the story of UNRWA. You might recall the last chapter, which was titled Shortages, 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 referred to the challenges in getting hold of supplies and getting them to where they were desperately needed, and included referring to strike action in one country causing difficulties. You might be interested to know that in today's edition of the Sydney Morning Herald, page one, the lead story, Government Ends Wharf Strike. There'd been a strike at the waterfront which had lasted 12 days, slowing up 102 ships. Urgent food cargoes had been delayed and there was concern expressed from around the world. Not only that, more trouble was looming on the waterfront with an issue over working hours. The union officials said last night that wharf labourers were determined to insist that as of June 1st, they would work only two shifts a day. At present, they were working three shifts around the clock. But let's resume our story, the story of UNRWA. Chapter 8 At the End of the Ship's Tackle The responsibility for speeding supplies from the ends of the earth down to the humblest peasant living under the rubble of his home and speeding them there in time was a divided one. UNRWA performed the first part of the task, the receiving government with UNRWA as a consultant and observer the second part. Together, they formed a great international lifeline. The supplies became the property of each government at the end of the ship's tackle, or at their border town of entry if they went in by land. It was the government's responsibility to see that they reached the people who were depending on them, with UNRWA standing by to observe their use and distribution. In some countries, naturally, distribution was better than in others. Much depended on the stability of the government in power. In one receiving country, Greece, UNRWA had to deal with nine different governments during the time its mission was in operation. Almost every change in government had a slowdown in distribution while the new ministers and UNRWA officials worked out operation agreements and techniques. In a second, China, a civil war hampered operations. Another distribution difficulty was lack of inland transportation. Sometimes supplies stood for considerable periods in dockside warehouses before they could be got moving. But the great bulk of UNRWA food and equipment went almost immediately and directly down to those for whom they were intended, the common people. In spite of the occasional misuse of UNRWA supplies that came to light, the administration is convinced that the government distribution was far more desirable than UNRWA distribution. The heavy overhead of providing enough distribution agents to handle UNRWA's huge imports would have cut deeply into their total. Salaries for these agents would have meant fewer loaves of bread for the starving. And, as it was, reports of leakages and abuses 
were investigated by the distribution observers attached to each mission and rectified. The black market, which is a frequent byproduct of acute shortages, even in the best organised lands, flourished in some of the war-tumbled countries UNRWA assisted. UNRWA officials watched closely, day by day, to make sure that no appreciable part of their relief supplies appeared in these markets, and in the main, they did not. It's not generally understood that UNRWA, in some instances, concurred in the sale of certain luxury goods in the open market. Cigarettes, for example, were an integral part of the immense stocks of surplus army ration packs that UNRWA purchased. Also, some items identified as UNRWA imports showed up in black markets in this way. Individuals or institutions would trade an item received from UNRWA for something else that UNRWA did not handle. Or they would exchange an UNRWA item which was in great demand, and therefore highly priced, for several items that were cheaper. A large quantity of more sustaining foods, perhaps. But these trade-ins never occurred in substantial numbers. The story of UNRWA will resume in further episodes. But now, let's see what fresh news BET has for us since yesterday. This letter probably overlaps a lot with earlier ones, but I don't want to miss out on letting you have all the news I can get across. Mrs. Betty Souter, UNRWA, 370 North Suchow Road, Shanghai, China, 18th of May, 1946. Hello there, dearest family, one and all. Today is Sunday. It's raining lightly. Everyone is quietly reading or snoozing. And I have been thinking, the opportunity is open, so I shall take advantage of it. What are you all doing? I long to get some news. I write this letter from Nanchang in the province of Changxi, way up the Yangtze and then some. We are certainly in the greater interior out here. Twelve of us on the staff, the only Europeans for hundreds of miles, and we are seeing the real China. Apart from being with the Chinese people in their work, we are being received most hospitably and spend many evenings at Chinese dinners, always with chopsticks, of course, in the Chinese homes. They are fascinating people, but on the whole, a dirty people too. Some things take a lot of getting used to. Some I will never get used to. I think I shall tell you about our curio dealers. The news of our arrival in town spread like bushfire. The popular belief is that the long-nosed foreigners have lots of money to spend and that they are pretty stupid in paying the prices they do. At first, two or three of them found their way to the doorstep at about 6pm on two or three evenings per week. Then they started to come every evening in the week, Sundays included, then they tried to outdo each other by coming a little earlier, the first arriving at about 4pm, and then their numbers increased, so that we now have at least 10 spreading out their wares on the front veranda from 3 o'clock onwards every afternoon. It is an advantage, of course, to have so many, because we get things at a much lower price. It is really a crying shame the way we bargain with them and cut their prices. 
Today, I bought two carved wooden figures, very fine work and most attractive, for $6,000, 18 pence, when originally they demanded $20,000 or three pounds. I'm extra well pleased with the purchase. Today, we are expecting the arrival of three more people from Shanghai, two nurses and a dentist, all American. I can imagine their thoughts as they are coming along the road, very bad road, in a crowded, smelly Chinese bus, lumped in with a lot of poor Chinese peasants for the 150-mile road journey after three or four days on an uncomfortable river steamer where there is little or no facility for even washing your hands and a week in the bug and rat-infested Chinese hotel at Kuchiang while waiting for seats on the bus. They will all be wondering why, in the name of fortune, they agreed to come to Changzi, and why the heck they left home anyway. They will picture a filthy, dirty town, some kind of makeshift hut in which they will be required to live for six or twelve months, and they will have determined to apply forthwith for a transfer back to Shanghai or any other place. But they will enjoy a lovely surprise when they reach our house here, just as I did. It is a nice house, our house, a Western-style building, two stories with lovely big rooms and plenty of comfort. We have lots of trees and plenty of ground around the house, the front garden extending right to the bank of the River Chan, where we watch the sampans and junks pass our very gate. We have a wonderful view across the wide river to the blue-green hills on the other bank. To attend to the human needs, we have a plentiful staff of excellent servants, a very good cook, and almost luxury meals. Chicken, duck, pork, fish, buffalo beef, which, strange to relate, is very good. Coffee, tea, porridge, eggs, rice, tomato juice, fresh, hot bread rolls, buns and cakes, even lemon meringue pie and custard puffs. And I thought we'd be camping. Last night, we had one of our bi-weekly Chinese meals at home. It was very good. The meal was accompanied by some Chinese wine, very potent. By the time the meal was over, everyone had a glow, and being Saturday night, the boys decided we must paint the town red. Marge and I were dragged along to help with the painting. The boys, on this occasion, consisted of two of the Americans and our Canadian, the rest of our men folk being away on a three-week inspection tour of the southeast part of the province. So off we went, hurtling along the narrow streets in one of the jeeps, singing the Star-Spangled Banner and many other doubtful army ditties at the top of our voices, scattering the city wanderers left and right. They seemed to get a great deal of amusement out of us, and as soon as we got out of our jeep to poke into the wine shops, we accumulated a cheering and curious audience of at least three or four hundred. The boys bought more jumbo juice, which was not really necessary, and several packets of Tom Thumb crackers. A packet of Tom Thumbs here must have at least a thousand bungers strung together. These were popping off every few seconds. Claude had a long string over his shoulder at one stage, picking off a few every now and again and tossing it here and there. Sully couldn't resist and set a match to the end which was hanging down Claude's back. 
boy, oh boy, did Claude jump and did the crowd shriek with glee. Having startled the natives, taken a rickshaw and pulled us girls along the main street, set crackers in the most amazing places and generally being most hilarious, they decided they were hungry. And at 12 midnight, we were sitting in a local restaurant eating short soup, sweet and sour pork and shrimps in scrambled eggs. Our audience in the dining room, called a private room, only numbered about 50. At about 2am, they condescended to drive us home. What a night, but what fun. And I guess that might give you a little idea of the doings of Betty Mavis in China. Cheerio for now. The boys have wakened from their lethargy and demand ping pong. He goes, we have learnt that it is easier in the long run to comply with their demands at the beginning. Lots of love, Bet. Production credits for this episode. Produced and narrated by Warren Henry. The voice of Betty Souter by Helen Polkinghorne. And the featured tune, in case you're tapping your toes, Choo Choo Chiboogie, Louis Jordan and his Timpani Five. For the station with a pack on my back I'm tired of transportation in the back of a hack I love to hear the rhythm of the clickety-clack And hear the lonesome whistle, see the smoke from the stack And pal around with democratic fellas named Mac So take me right back to the track Jack, choo-choo, choo-choo-chiboogie Woo-woo, woo-woo-chiboogie Choo-choo, choo-choo-chiboogie Take me right back to the track Jack But alas and alack You need some compensation to get back in the black You take a morning paper from the top of the stack And read the situations from the front to the back The only job that's open needs a man with a knack So put it right back in the rack Jack, choo-choo, choo-choo-chiboogie Woo-woo, woo-woo-chiboogie Choo-choo, choo-choo-chiboogie Take me right back to the track Jack, track, live the life of Riley in the beaten down shack, so when I hear a whistle I can peep through the crack, and watch the train a rolling when it's falling the jack, for I just love the rhythm of the clickety clack, so take me right back to the track, jack, choo choo, choo choo chiboogie, woo woo, woo woo chiboogie, choo choo, choo choo chiboogie, take me right back to the track.